Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to be here today. Praise the Lord. Amen. All right. I want to make mention this is Hamp's uh, eight-year anniversary today. It's being our, one of our pastors. Yeah. You look so much older than eight years old, though. <laughs> and Hamp is a dear brother to me and a dear friend, and so uh, we're blessed to have him. All right, well, let's pray together, and uh, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for uh, what you've just brought us through this last week, uh, some through great trial and struggle, uh, some who are still going through those struggles. And so we pray, Lord, for the ill among us. We pray for those that are persecuted around the world. And we pray, Lord, that uh, those of us who are been, have been so blessed this week would never forget the great goodness that you've given to us and the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. Thank you, Father, that we have this wonderful and profound opportunity to come once again this morning to hear your word. Lord, may we really absorb that truth, that this is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to hear from you. And so, Lord, may we never take it for granted. Open our minds and our hearts so we might hear you today. Hear our requests as we lift them up to you. Lord, that we know that you are faithful, uh, you are a great physician and a great healer of all things. And so it's to you that we look this morning, and it's to you we pledge our allegiance and our hope. And so we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in our series, The Foundational Truths of Scripture, uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. And so find your place in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verse 5 today as we're just working our way through the Beatitudes here. And uh, let me just back up just a little bit and, and remind us that what we're talking about here is just, as I said in the little series title, is that these are foundational truths. Um, but let me just talk about the vision of the Lord for just a minute. As I, as I process uh, personally what the Lord is doing throughout the scriptures there are basically three things that we we learn in scripture so to keep this as simple as possible understand that Jesus first came to teach us about himself then he came to show us proofs of who he is and then he commissioned us to go out okay and if you think about the scriptures with me that's really the basic format of what the Lord was doing that was his vision that was his plan he first understood that he had to teach, that people had to be aware of who he was. But then he showed them his great abilities to prove to us that he is who he says he is, that he is distinct and unique from all other people who claim to be God because he is the only God. And then he says, if you remember with the disciples or to the disciples, he says, now go out and make disciples. So they had spent time with him in teaching. They had spent time with him in seeing the great miracles of who, who he was. And then they also experienced the ability to go out and do what the Lord had called them to do. And so really we should look at our lives as that kind of a pattern. We're in phase one in this sermon now of Jesus' teaching. Okay, So just understand that's where we are. Jesus has made himself known, but now he's teaching them who he is, okay? So we understand that very, very clearly. Now, the problem is, as we've mentioned a couple times here, and I want to go over that a little bit more, is the problem is many of the people didn't like his plan. In fact, I would say that even in our life today, many people don't like the plan that the Lord has. Now, people will listen to him. People don't mind hearing the teaching part. People really don't mind seeing the miraculous from the Lord. I mean, that's exciting stuff, right? I mean, anybody that can do what he did, that is pretty impressive. And many people will follow a God like that. But when it comes down to taking the commission on yourself, that becomes a different challenge. One thing to listen, one thing to see. It's another thing to say, oh, you mean it's my turn to go and do something with this? Quite a different challenge. But that's where the people were. That's where the Hebrews were. And that's really where the church has been. Because we have this mindset about us that is a win-win attitude. I'll do this as long as I can win. As long as I can beat my opponent. And I think we all understand that. The problem is, again, we don't like the plan that the Lord has for winning. 
because it doesn't sound much like winning when we talk about the kind of character that God's people are supposed to have. We've talked about what it means to be poor in spirit. We've talked about what it means to be humble, right? And now we're going to talk about another character trait of what a person of God and what the kingdom of God looks like out of the people of God this morning, okay? So let's just go back now just a little bit and uh, talk about who Jesus was really wanting to understand first, and that was the Hebrew people. So today's title is Happy Are the Gentle. Now, you may have a King James Version or another translation that uses the word meek or meekness. And so I'm going to use those words interchangeably today. If your translation says gentle, like the New American Standard, then that's what you'll see. But just understand, gentle meekness is the same thing. We'll talk about that even more fully. I'll give you a better definition as we go through this. So let's stand this morning and look at chapter 5. I'm not going to do this all the way through the Beatitudes, but I do want to do this for now. Let's back up to verse 1, just so we keep this in our minds as we really get this settled. And I want you to again keep in mind that Jesus is in his teaching phase here. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And now today, blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All right, praise the Lord. Let's, let's be seated. Now, I, I worked our way through this information I want to share with you about the Hebrews for just a minute, but I think it's important for us to understand the context over and over again. It's been said that people have to hear something basically seven times to really commit it to memory. I think some of us need it about 70 times to commit it to memory, and so let's just keep going over this for the weaker ones of us. We have to understand the circumstances of Jewish life. In order to understand the scriptures, we have to understand the context in which the scriptures were written so that we really get the full meaning here. You remember that most of the existence of the Hebrew people was under some kind of domination. They never really thought that because they said to Jesus at one point, hey, we've never been in subservience to anybody. But that was absolutely not true. That was a figment of their imagination. They had been under Pharaoh's thumb for over 400 years. You remember that? They had been under the Assyrians. They had been under the Medes and the Persians. They had been under the Greeks. And by the time of Jesus, they were under the oppressive hand of the Romans. Now, the Romans let them have a lot of their own life, so to speak. They were very gracious to them in a lot of ways, but they were still the dominant force. Now, some of this will be familiar to you who are students of history. It wasn't really until after the Maccabean revolt, that was Judas Maccabeus, that the Jews found some freedom from the Greeks at the time. And that's what the revolt was all about. You can go back and look at that in history, and it's a really interesting read. But it didn't take them long to be under the thumb of the Romans, as I was just mentioning a second ago, who was, by the way, the most powerful nation in the known world at the time. And that's critical to understand. And because of that never-ending domination of all of these people groups, these nations outside of the Hebrews for all of these centuries, the Jews sought to be free all the time. In other words, it was their main plan to be revolutionaries. They wanted to strike against their opponents because they were tired of being under the thumb of all of these peoples. But those revolutionaries came about their approach in a lot of different ways. You remember some weeks ago we talked about the various groups of people, Hebrews at the time. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was another group called the Essenes, and then there were the Zealots. Well, the Pharisees were those people who said, you know what, we know that the Messiah is coming, but we know that when he comes, he's going to lead us spiritually and overthrow through supernatural power. That's how he's going to come. That's what the Pharisees believed. And then there were the Sadducees. These were the liberal ones who just believed in a lot of erroneous things, believing that the Messiah would come, They didn't doubt that, but he would take over and rule through political means or somehow make compromises so that we can get this show on the road and we can be the nation that we really want to be. It was the zealots, however, who were the real physical revolutionaries. They were the ones who wanted to take up arms against Rome and be the real insurrectionist, taking the ground of Rome subversively and even some guerrilla-type warfare tactics. That's who those guys were. 
And it was all because they believed that they were helping God, that they were clearing the way for the Messiah. All these groups believed that, that they were working for the Messiah, making his entrance into ruling for them much easier. I mean, you can imagine that. Let's just help God along, right? We'll do our part, and surely God will be pleased, and that will bring the Messiah in much, much quicker because he would be their deliverer, and they believed that. This was not something that they didn't believe. So basically, the Jews were a pretty divided group when it came to taking power over Rome. But the one thing that they truly did believe is that they believed that the Messiah would come and free them from anyone and everyone's rule. That was what they had in common. It wasn't until 70 AD that the Romans really got tired of the Jews, and you know the story. They went through and they massacred over a million Jews. They killed all of the priests. Again, that's why there is no priesthood today. There are no records to determine who would be the next priest. And this is what we learned in a couple chapters earlier, that Jesus was the last known recorded record in the genealogy of who would be the Messiah or who would be the high priest. And so no other records are left. Even later, in the year 132 to 135 A.D., the Romans came through again and killed everybody living in the various areas around Jerusalem. And so this was a horrific, horrific time. So you can imagine now, understanding that historical context, and you have to put yourself in that place. If you don't put yourself in the place contextually, you really don't get a flavor for what the Lord is doing in his writings. It was because of all of that that the Jews were absolutely shocked and unbelief and unbelief about who Jesus was and the things that he was saying. There's no way that this man could be the Messiah after what he is preaching and what they're he- hearing from him. They would never believe that the way to control Rome or any other aggressor against them would be through humility? Are you kidding me? There's no way or To mourn over our sin, that's nothing but just weakness. No, we've got to conquer this. And they just couldn't buy that kind of strategy. And so they looked at him as a phony. You're the weakling. You're a fake. And so much so that they put him to death on a cross, which was a place that was a condemnation for thieves and for murderers. And that's why they wanted Barabbas. You remember that text in Scripture that we'll get to eventually? Release to us Barabbas. Well, who in the world is Barabbas? Well, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a man that was known to be a leader among the leaders trying to overthrow Rome. And so when they saw Jesus as this not Messiah in their mind, they looked to Barabbas to lead them. And so they were willing to forsake the Son of God who had come to rescue their souls that they missed, didn't understand, to release unto them Barabbas, just to help you understand that, who in their minds was a far greater leader for what they really wanted out of the Messiah. And interestingly, the crucifixion actually proved their belief in his inability to lead them. And so in a strange kind of plot twist, as Satan would use it, the cross they understood was for criminals, and there's no way that the true Messiah would ever be put on a cross. Imagine now, as a Jew, how in the world could the Messiah of God be put on a cross? That's the place that only criminals are put there. And that's why we put Jesus there. It was for all of these reasons that they rejected him, even though they had the scriptures. Now, this is critical. They had the scriptures that gave to them the very understanding of who the Messiah would be. Because Isaiah, in chapter 53, wrote this. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he has borne and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying? Many, many, many hundreds of years before the Messiah would come. This is what the Hebrews knew. They knew this about him, but they denied it fully. So again, their problem was like so many people. They just simply didn't believe the scriptures. I mean, that's really case number one. 
That's why people still today just don't accept Jesus. Listen, do you understand how blessed we are to come in this morning to hear the word of the Lord? This is God's gift to us so that we know who he is and we then know how we are to live our lives. It's God's plan for us to understand him and then to follow him. We're a blessed people, but one of the greatest tricks up the sleeve of Satan is to deny people the word of the Lord. And he will use everything that he can in his powers. And so one of the biggest problems, like the Hebrews, is that people often today just don't believe the scriptures. They deny it or they pick and choose. Secondly, they listen more to their fleshly perspective. For example, no one in their right mind would believe you can conquer a nation with humility. I already mentioned that. Or by confessing sins. What kind of situation is that? Nations, people believe, are conquered by one thing. Power. Whoever has the biggest stick wins. Right? That's what has to happen. Be stronger than any other nation. But what Jesus knew was governments. Listen carefully now. Because this is going to fly in the face even of what many people called Christians today believe. Governments today, like then, are conquered by souls being saved. Because when a soul is saved, guess who comes to live in that soul? The Spirit of the living God. And when the Spirit of the living God comes in, then the thinking is changed. And then the person begins to follow what's true, right, and holy. And Jesus knew that. If we really want governments to be changed from ungodly ways of operation then the soul of the government people need to be changed. That's how governments are won. So Jesus didn't come to conquer Rome or any other earthly nation except for the kingdom of Satan. That's what he came for, to rescue people from the hand of Satan and the sin that blinds their hearts and their minds. That's why he came to rescue you. The reason you're here today is not so you can learn how to be a political stronghold in this nation or to usurp any kind of authority that goes against the scripture, what God has called you and me to do, or to be vehicles through which his word will travel so the hearts of people will come to understand, so that they will see him for who he is, the God who has come to rescue them from eternal damnation. He came to set people free spiritually. And all of this is when you see this, when Pilate asked Jesus on the steps of the praetorium there who he was. When he was arrested, Jesus was arrested, Pilate said to him, Who are you? In fact, let me read it for you in John 18, 36. Jesus' response is this, My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate had asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And we'll get to all of this once we get to the latter part of the chapters because Jesus was part, uh, basically Jesus was brought before Pilate because the Jews were saying, He says he's the king, we're, he's our king. He's not our king. Pilate's confused. He's a Roman uh, leader. He wants to know what's going on. Is this just another insurrection? What's happening here? But God was behind it all. And so he brings Jesus before him to test him. And he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Basically just say so if you are. And Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. In other words, Jesus was saying, listen, the kingdom is not connected with this world system or any other government or political power. My kingdom has nothing to do with that. My kingdom is made up of souls who have been set free from the blindness of sin. They've been set free from the spiritual darkness. People have had their eyes open to see the darkness that encompasses them. That's why Jesus came. And that's who he is as the Messiah. His whole purpose was to rescue the souls of men and women from the uttermost darkness of which they will go to forever and forever and forever if they forsake him. So for people to see the kingdom for what it is, he had to show the contrast between this world system and his system or his kingdom, this kingdom and the world's kingdom. And I dare say again, beloved, that is one of the tripping points for all people is that we somehow have a challenging difficulty between separating what God's kingdom looks like and what man's kingdom looks like. So much so that they end up blurred and united in many ways. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man are far different. Far, far different. 
And I hope that you're hearing that as we preach these messages and as we go through the scripture. This book, beloved, is all about the kingdom of God and who makes it up. This is not about the kingdom of man. And we have to make sure that we are thinking with our spiritual minds as we listen to the word of the Lord so that our lives in this kingdom of man place can become a part of the kingdom of God. So what we have from Jesus really basically is the kingdom is made up of people who understand that they have nothing to offer God. That was number one. Remember that? Poor in spirit. Jesus is saying the people who make up my kingdom are people who are spiritually destitute and unable to make their way into the kingdom. They realize that. I have no ability. I can't do it. And so they live their lives continually mourning over their sin because they see how wicked they are. And they understand the devastation that sin has brought into them. Even if they are saved from the penalty of sin, they still see the effects of sin in their life. And I hope that's you. I, I pray that for me. Is in our day-to-day goings along that we will see the effect of sin and the tragedy that it has given or made in our hearts and in our lives. And so we live with a heavy heart. I pray that this last week that you lived with a heavy heart. Not that you are joyless. Remember the whole point that Jesus is making here is that these are the happy people. True blessedness, true happiness, true inner contentedness comes from within the heart knowing that I have nothing to offer God and I see my sin before him, believing that we are nothing before him, but that Christ is everything. I hope you understand that. Now, let's talk about today this beatitude that he wants us to understand. Continuing his teaching, Jesus says to the people who make up his kingdom, Blessed are those who are gentle or meek. Okay? Now, the word gentle here is to mean mild or soft. Again, you could substitute the word meek there. Now, it's, what Jesus is really referring to here is a gentle spirit. This person is submissive, submissive to God. They have a quiet heart. They're not verbose, if you will, in their spiritual, in their human goings, rather. But they are quiet spiritually, tender-hearted. All of those things could be used here. Again, the King James translates it meek or meekness. Some think a person like this is weak. Most people would say, oh, what kind of kingdom is that where all of its patrons are gentle? Warriors are fierce, dominant, Buff, right? Jacked. They carry a big spear. They they wave a huge sword. That's what soldiers look like, but not in the kingdom of God. A far different picture. Meekness is not weakness. But here's the best definition that I can give you, and many of you have heard this before. Meekness is power under control. Power under control. That's very, very important to understand. Now, the best illustration that I could come up with in my mind that I believe the Spirit gave me was many years ago when I worked on the horse farm. There were many of these thoroughbreds. Have you ever worked with horses? Some of you will know this. Uh, There's a difference between breeds. But thoroughbreds are very, very high strung. They get spooked easily, and they're very powerful, very quick in their response to things. And so on the farm, what we would do is we, the, the owner, who was a, a very wealthy man, he would uh, take these horses and he would train them or get them ready physically, I should say, for the racetrack. Now, I didn't do any of the betting, okay? But I did go to the racetrack and it was fascinating to watch these beautiful animals run and do their thing. But while they were at the farm, one, my job was not only to keep the stalls clean, which was mainly my main job um, in humility... Uh, but an important task was to walk the horses around in the sand lot or to cool them down. Every day they would exercise them, and then we would wash them, bathe them, put medicines on them. It was just an amazing thing. And then we would have to cool them down in the heat of the summer before we'd put them, put them back in the stalls. Well, it wouldn't take much walking along with the lead while this halter is on the horse for the horse to get spooked. And here you have this what appears to be docile animal just going along with every direction that you wanted to go to all of a sudden about to jerk your arm off 
And in many cases, it felt like that was the case. There were numerous times where a horse would stand up on its hind legs and his head would be as tall as those speakers, it seemed like, to the point where I was backing up. And I'm a pretty tall guy and let go of the reins because I knew, or let go of the lead because I knew that this thing was about to jerk me off and take me running down the, down the, the field without using my feet, you understand? <laughs> and so in my mind, that's the picture of meekness. You have this animal that has this ability to be subdued, but at a moment's notice, they turn into something really powerful. Okay? So this is what Jesus is talking about, is that it is power under control. It is not a person who is powerless, but it's a person who's understood now through the power of the Spirit to remain in control always of their lives, being humbled by their sin to the point where they are mourning over their sin, and they then keep their sin under control. Now you may be asking, what's the difference between poor in, the, poor in spirit and meek or gentle? Because they sound very similar. We talked about the poor in spirit first a couple weeks ago. Well, one commentator said this, Poverty in spirit focuses on our sinfulness, whereas meekness focuses on God's holiness. Big difference there. One focuses on our weakness, the other focuses on God's holiness. When we look honestly at ourselves, we are made humble by seeing how sinful and unworthy we are. And when we look at God, we're made humble by seeing how righteous and worthy He is. So, to be broken in spirit then is focused on my sinfulness. You get the picture? That's unique to that. To be gentle or to be meek is to be focused on God's holiness. So, to be meek, to be gentle, is having every sinful instinct, listen carefully, every passion, every impulse of the flesh, under control. Under control. Now, Jesus could have said it this way, one commentator wrote, Blessed are those who live their lives under control. And I'm here to say, beloved, many people are not under control. Many, many people are not under control. William Barclay wrote this. There was a Roman teacher who said of his students, they would no doubt be excellent students if they were not already convinced of their own knowledge. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? No one can teach people who know it all already. Some parents are saying that. Yep, i got a child like that. Without humility, there can be no such thing as love, for the very beginning of love, listen, is a sense of unworthiness. Let me read that again. For the very beginning of love is a sense of unworthiness. That's a great statement. That's a great statement. Without humility, there can be no true religion, for all true religion begins with a realization of our own weakness and of our need for God. True humility can only be reached when we are always conscious that we are the creatures and that God is the creator and that without God we can do nothing. So let's say this another way. Jesus could have said, Blessed are those who have the humility to know their own ignorance, their own weakness, and their own need. Becoming a much clearer picture, isn't it? Another commentator said this, The meek person, for example, accepts joyfully the seizing of his property, knowing that he has infinitely better and more permanent possessions awaiting him in heaven. The meek person has died to self, and he therefore does not worry about injury to himself or about loss, insult, or abuse. The meek person does not defend himself because that is his Lord's command and example. And second, because he knows that he does not deserve defending. Being poor in spirit and having mourned over his great sinfulness, the gentle person stands humbly before God, knowing he has nothing to commend himself. Now listen, if those truths, or rather it is those truths that keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the greatest hindrance to the unsaved heart is pride. That's what it is. The greatest hindrance to the unsaved heart is pride. It's hard enough as a true believer. And I'm talking about pride in themselves, their own abilities, their thinking, their logic, what they believe is right and wrong, 
which always leads to an unwillingness to surrender. A person who is willing to surrender lets pride go. Or they put it in check. And that's where it all has to begin. In order to be a true believer, Jesus is teaching, you must be seeing your sin as it violates God. You must mourn, repent over that sin. And then you've got to let it go. You've got to learn how to control those fleshly tendencies because if you don't, you will be unwilling to surrender to the Lord. That is what keeps people out of the kingdom of heaven. And that is why, through pride, people will go to a devil's hell because they will not submit to a holy God. And many have made their way to hell in just that way. They'd, they'd rather make life on their own instead of submitting to who God is in humility and brokenness and live lives of gentleness. William Barclay said this again. We'll conclude with this thought here. Not the sermon, but this thought. So don't, don't leave me yet. Jesus could have said, Oh, the bliss of those who are always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time, who have every instinct, impulse, and passion under control because they themselves are God-controlled, who have the humility to realize their own ignorance and their own weakness, for such people can indeed rule the world, which is what Jesus is going to talk about. Those are great statements. If you like copies of those, just let me know. I'll be glad to give them to you. Again, so as Jesus was teaching the crowd, when we are pouring out our spirits, we are turning away from ourselves. We're removing ourselves from the situation, from all that we want, and we mourn over our sin. And meekness or gentleness then turns to God for his righteousness, for his forgiveness. In other words, the kingdom of God is made up of people who are realistic about their sin. They accept their sin. They believe that they are sinners. They repent and they look to God for his forgiveness. All other people are the unhappy people. Those are the unhappy people. The people who are constantly searching and seeking happiness in this world system through pride and arrogance and doing things their own way are the most unhappy people. That's why they keep pressing forward. That's why there's nothing that satisfies. Because it's all a human attempt to reach happiness. But Jesus says, listen, if you do it my way, then I'll give you lasting happiness that will go beyond anything that you've ever believed. These are the people who are the happiest. But a meek or gentle man never gets angry over what he doesn't or can't have. Why? Because he or she knows everything is a gift from God. That's why. We understand that in this life everything belongs to the Lord. Everything is a gift from God. There's nothing that I can do to achieve his glory or his righteousness or his eternal kingdom. And so he or she never pushes his or her own agenda. Never gets angry about what's done to him or her. Do you understand the change in gender there? He knows he has nothing that he deserves. You know, sometimes we get that idea that we've served the Lord, even as Christians. Again, it's hard enough as a Christian. Sometimes we think we've been serving the Lord for a lot of years and things don't go our way. And we kind of think, gosh, Lord. Shouldn't I deserve a little better after all these years I've been serving you? Well, no, see, that's the wrong answer because the true person of humility, the true person of uh, recognizing their sin, the true person who is meek understands that we don't deserve anything from the Lord. And we see that over and over in Scripture. Listen to what God says, the mark of those who make up his kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is instruction now. This is part of the phase two, if you will, or actually the phase one. This was not Jesus teaching this per se. This was Paul. But understand it's still the word of the Lord from Jesus given to Paul. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In other words, you've become a Christian. Now let your life reflect that. With all what? Humility. And what else? Gentleness. With humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now again, just that one verse, I'm going to read you a couple others, but just that one verse shows us how different the thinking is from the world, right? Colossians 3, verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. Here it is again, gentleness, patience, 
bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Very, very different from the world in its thinking. Titus 3, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And then the Lord even gives us some examples of people in Scripture who are living the way that Christ is instructing us to live. For example, Moses in Numbers chapter 12. You realize what's written about Moses? It's put in verse 3 of chapter 12. A little parenthesis here. As God is saying something about Moses, listen to what he says about him. Moses was very humble. But listen to this. More than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now let's just think about Moses' life for a second. Moses had everything that Egypt had to offer. But he left all of that. Lived 40 years in the backside of a wilderness until God called him to go serve him by bringing the people out of Egypt. And Moses was an incredible leader. But God says of him, he was the most humble man that ever existed. Now, if you're doing a resume, let's just think about that for a second. You're going in front of somebody because you've got your resume out there on Indeed and they've called you to come for an interview and you present your resume and it says, poor in spirit, humble, meek, or gentle. And they're asking you to become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Well, somebody who's thinking properly might be able to read between the lines there a little bit, but that's not what you'd put on a resume. You put, oh, and we lie. I've been this, this, and this, and as I was the manure cleaner on the stables, I would put, oh, no, I worked for a multi-million dollar horse farm and was responsible for the inventory system, and no, what I did was let a horse out of the stall and cleaned up after it. I mean, you see, we want to elevate ourselves in order to make ourselves look good. But the people in the kingdom of heaven are not that way. Moses, most humble of all. How about Job? Job chapter 5. Here's what we're told about him. So that he sets on high those who are lowly. Talking about God putting people in place. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. But he frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advance of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night, but he saves from the sword of the mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty, so the helpless has hope and unrighteousness must shut its mouth. And then there's David. Listen to what David said about himself in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Now, who was David? He was the king of Israel. He was the king. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. There's his poor in spirit. And my sin is ever before me. He's mourning. Against thee, thee only have I sinned. Do you see him as awareness of God's righteousness? And done this evil in thy sight, and thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward part, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David understood, didn't he? And then, of course, there's Paul himself as he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 15. Excuse me, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Again, we look at Paul's life and we say, come on, Paul, give me a break. You're the most holy man of the New Testament. No, that's not what he thought of himself. Because he understood what God's kingdom is all about. The kingdom of God is made up of the gentle, the people who are aware of these things. And so... The gentleness that Jesus is talking about is not a lack of conviction. It's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about not being nice. He's not talking about not having courage and strength and conviction from God. He's not talking about not having any of those things. And the true strength shows up is when God and his holiness are violated. In fact, when Jesus 
turned over the money changers' tables. The reason he was in there was not because he was defending himself. Remember what he said? He says, the house, God, shall not be violated this way. He was defending the Father. He wouldn't have gone to the cross if he was defending himself. He's always defending God in his word. Anytime that you look in the scriptures, he's defending the Father and what the Father has written. I always do what the Father says. I submit myself to the Father. So meekness is gentleness, but it never defends itself. It always stands for what's right. It defends God. That's what the meek do. The meek stand up for what's right in God's mind not themselves. Again, do you see the contrast? Do you see the difference between how we operate in this life? We stand up very quickly when we've been violated, when we've been mistreated somehow, but those of God's kingdom don't do that. They stand up for what's right in God's eyes. So what a a contrast between the saved and the unsaved. The opposite is, When Jesus was in the garden and they came to arrest him, here's what we read in Matthew 26. One of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew out his sword, we know that to be Peter, and struck the slave of the high priest, cut off his ear. He was defending his Messiah, wasn't he? Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword, Peter. In other words, his heart was right spiritually, but he was doing it in the wrong motive in his flesh. Verse 53, I love this. Do you not think that I could appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, Jesus was saying, hey, listen, Peter, listen. You you just got to understand this, that if I wanted to, I could simply ask the father and he would immediately give to me 12 legions of angels to protect me from what's happening right now. Jesus was fully in control of the situation, inwardly and outwardly. And by the way, I did the math on this legion thing, and it comes from the fact that a Roman legion in the military sense was about 6,000 soldiers, one legion. And if you do the math, that would be about 72,000 angels. Now you say, well, I'm not so sure what an angel can do. I mean, they, you know, they just kind of float around and... You know, we, we're all going to be angels, wrong answer. We're not going to be angels, right? But that's the idea that people have. Oh, what harm can an angel do? Well, let me give you an idea what harm one angel can do. One angel. We're told that one angel in 2 Kings 19 killed 185,000 men in one night. One night. So these little beautiful, cute little angel things are God's special creation that can wreak havoc in the human world. And they could have been called at Jesus' disposal at any second. And by the way, that's a potential of killing, if you do the math on that, about 13 billion people instantly. 13 billion people. And Jesus said, like that, I could call for them, and they would come. The point is not that, though. The point is Jesus being in control. He becomes the example, the model of meekness because God was working his plan. And by the way, God is working his plan in us, right? Every time we're come against by someone, every time we face a situation that we don't like, it's God growing us or using us in some way to accomplish his purposes. And so we are to remain in control of the situation. Now, some examples of gentleness and meekness also come from other people in Scripture. For example, Abraham in Genesis 13. You remember when his nephew Lot and Abraham were traveling and it came time for them to divide because both herdsmen of the clans, of Abraham and Lot's clans, were at odds with each other over a particular situation. And so here's what Abraham says in Genesis 13. Abraham says to Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdsmen and thy herdsmen. For we are brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thee, separate yourself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you depart to the right, then I'll go to the left. In other words, Abraham was meek in meekness, gentleness, saying to his nephew, Listen, 
I think you may have this out of focus a little bit because you remember Lot will eventually take the land that becomes Sodom. And that was a bad place to be. He got really involved in that culture. But it was Abraham who says, listen, I really have the rights here, but I'm just going to let you do what you think is best. It's a beautiful picture of meekness. And then there was Joseph. And I'm talking about the Joseph way back. His brothers cruelly treated him, viciously treated him. <clears throat> and later, excuse me, when he became Pharaoh's right-hand man, he had the power to have them all killed just like that. But he didn't do it. He said, no, listen, this was God's plan from the beginning. He did all of this in order to rescue many people. And that's what we read in Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the heart of Joseph, understanding that as second in command of the entire nation of Egypt, I could have you wiped out in the blink of an eye. But I understand that God was at work in all of this. And so I'm going to withhold anything that would cause an issue for you or for my father because Joseph could see the bigger picture. And see, that really becomes part of the point too is that Jesus is instructing here. He wants his disciples to see and keep focused on the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, beloved, is what I said in the beginning. Jesus came to teach, he came to show, and he came to commission. Because he knew that without his saving work, people will die and go to an eternal hell forever. Imagine with me for just 30 seconds. If I were Jesus, and I said to you sitting in front of me, in about two seconds, you're going to be cast in eternal hell forever and forever and forever. Just think about that for just a second. It's a horrifying thought. I mean, an absolutely horrifying thought. But then, on the other hand, Jesus would turn around and say, but listen, I love you. I came to give my life for you. I came to die for you to pay the penalty of your sins so that you don't have to go there if you'll just surrender your heart to me, if you'll just give me your life and take part of me. And by the way, I'm poor in spirit. I'm humble. I understand what it means to be meek. I understand what it's like to have all the temptations of this world. We're told that in the scripture. But turn your life over to me and I'll rescue you. But if not, in two seconds you're going to be gone forever and 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 forever. In other words, you're not coming out. It's a horrifying thought. But that's reality. That's reality. Moses, we've already talked about, the humblest man on earth. In Exodus 3, we see this picture of him when God says to him, hey, I want you to go back and let my people go. And he says, who am I to do that? I have no ability. I have no power against Pharaoh. And God says, that's why I'm choosing you. Because I have the power. I just want you to be willing. Later, he kept giving God excuses and God got angry over it. And he gave him his brother Aaron. But then we see the meekness of Moses come out at one particular point. You remember when he's up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments? And he comes down because God says, go down to the camp because they've created an idol, basically. Moses gets there, he's looking over the scene, and he sees his brother down there who's the maker of this idol, takes part in all this. And Moses, in his rage, not because of what they'd done to him, but because of their violation of God, in his holiness, cast the Ten Commandments down and breaks them. He's so angry over it. There's the picture of his meekness that was under control, but then as he got out of control, just because, like Jesus, who saw the Father violated, he became aware of all of that and became enraged that the people would do such an atrocity against the holiness of God. Those, beloved, are the times when we are to stand. And to cry out for God to make a difference and to proclaim the goodness of God and defend His name. We are never to defend ourselves. We defend Him. We defend His righteousness, His holiness. But for us, we're servants. We're servants who live life humbly before Him and exalt Him in all things. David could have killed King Saul in 1 Samuel 24, but kept his power under control. You remember that's the story where he snuck up behind Saul 
And while Saul was sleeping and just took a piece of his robe, and one of his servants said, kill him! Kill him! And David says, what? How can I kill the Lord's anointed? I'm not going to violate the Lord's anointed. See, he had God on his mind, and therefore he acted properly. My favorite, though, of King David, and I just have to read you this story. Bear with me for a minute because... I think we could identify with something like this. This is after David is running from his son Absalom. And so he has a band of men with him. But listen to what, he, what happens here. When King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. So you see this big entourage of David and they're surrounding David and here's this little nothing of a guy who felt violated because of Saul who was the king of Israel that David was had dealt with and he was upset about it all and he's throwing out these curses and rocks and stuff at these people. And thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. And behold, you were taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. And I love this now. Here's where it comes in verse 9. And Abisha, the son of Zariah, said said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. But listen to David. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses and if the Lord has told him, Curse David, them who shall say, Why have you done so? And then David said to his servant and to all the other servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of this cursing this day. So David and his men went on his way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. You can just imagine that scene. Now I dare say, folks, listen. If you're out in full armor like David was with his military entourage and somebody comes up and starts doing that to you, more than likely you and I would say to our right-hand man, yeah, that's a great idea. Go whack his head off. I'm tired of that dead dog. But that's not what David did. Because David understood the things that we're talking about here. David understood that to be God's man or woman means that there are times where we're going to be insulted, we're going to be afflicted, we're going to be put pressure on, we're going to be having all kinds of things that we're having to deal with from other people. But that's not how we're to respond in that way. We're to respond in righteousness, in holiness, and justness, which is what David did here. You might ask, as we're just about done here, what kind of reward is there for those who are gentle and meek? Look at verse 5 again. What kind of reward is there for this? In other words, Lord, you're asking me to be this kind of person. What do I get out of the deal? They shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. Now, what does that mean? Forever, beloved, man has been trying to preserve this planet. I mean, it's just all over the place. Go green, go green, go green, go green, right? We understand that. I'm not arguing against that. What I'm just simply saying is man has been fighting over the land, the environment, control of what he can do with this or that, all to preserve the world so he can dominate it. That's what's been the case. Wars have been fought, everything. You know how it goes. But the Lord says, you you want to know who will inherit the earth? The meek. The gentle. Those are the people who are going to inherit the earth. The gentle in spirit. Because, listen, listen, because... Only those people will survive. Nobody else is going to survive other than the people that Jesus is preaching about. The people that Jesus is teaching about are the people who will make up the kingdom. Who, by the way, eventually, according to Revelation, you remember, are going to come back with Jesus and they're going to rule and reign a thousand years with him. 
during the millennial kingdom? They will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. They will be a part of the earth. And so Jesus is saying, listen, the inheritance of this place, try as hard as you may, is not going to go to the unrighteous. It's going to go to the people who have surrendered their life to me. Those are the people who will be a part of it. Can you imagine the world when it's completely inhabited by people who are like this? I mean, think of a world like that. Poor in spirit, humble, meek. What a great place. And we're only, a, we're only partially the way through. Everybody else is removed and cast into the lake of fire. So let's talk about, just for a minute here, what happens when you don't become meek or gentle. Well, you've already heard the first part. You can't get saved. You can't hear God. If you're not meek, if you're not gentle, you will not be able to be saved. And you say, how do you know that? Well, James 1.21 says, In humility, receive the word implanted. Okay? So I've got to be humble to receive the word. That's right. And James qualifies it by saying, Which is able to save your souls. You see that? The word became flesh, according to John 1. Jesus Christ came as the word of the living God and he became flesh, he dwelt among us. He distributed, he explained, he gave out the word. And James now later, his half-brother, is saying this, listen, if you want to be saved, you've got to hear the word of the Lord. And the way you hear the word of the Lord is through his word. If you don't hear his word, then you can't be saved. And beloved, that's the message of the ages, isn't it? You see why Satan fights so hard to cause you and me to be distracted from the Bible? That's why Satan of all created beings knows that if you hear the word of the Lord, you're going to be saved if you open your hearts. And he does not want that. And so he does everything he can do to keep you from the word of the Lord. Everything. He'll stop at nothing. From the simplest to the greatest. Because he knows if you hear the word of the Lord, your heart potentially will be convicted and that's all up to God's divine providence, which Satan doesn't know, and you will be rescued. And that's what he doesn't want. He does not want you or me rescued. I love how the King James or even the ESV put it this way, which I believe is more correct. Verse 21 of James 1, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Listen, you have the power to resist the word of the Lord, but instead what God is saying, suppress the world and listen to me. Listen to me. So basically, if you don't become meek, you won't be able to hear the word of the Lord. If you can't hear the word of the Lord, you won't be saved, and you've not saved, you're going to spend eternity in hell. So that's simple. If you're not meek, you can't witness for Christ, Peter says. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, when you're out and about in your daily life and you're living the Spirit of God, if somebody says to you, hey, how do you get saved? Wouldn't that be awesome if somebody said that? Some people have had that experience. Here's what he says. Do it with gentleness and with respect. In other words, our job is not to push people into salvation. That's not our job. That's not our job. Our job is to lead them, give them the facts, and let the Spirit of God do the work. Show them their sinfulness. Remember, we started that way weeks ago. People got to see their sin. Got to start there. Show them how to repent. Don't push them. Let the Spirit of God do the work, and they will understand and receive. No one needs to tell you that you were born again. Right? Does anybody need to tell you that you're born again? Listen, if you have to ask if you're born again, there's a problem. Now, I'm not saying that to be anything other than truthful. If you have to ask someone, am I saved? There's a problem with that. Every person that's been rescued from some tragedy knows they were rescued, right? Now, they may have been knocked out cold, lying underneath a truck, but when they came to, they knew that they were saved, right? Listen, people know when they're truly born again. 
Now, you may not understand all the ins and outs of what I'm talking about here, what the Bible talks about with that, but you know in your heart that you've been born again. You know. The Spirit of God confirms it in you. Nobody has to tell you any differently. Okay, so you say, well, how do I know I'm born again? Well, if you're born again, you're going to live your life in self-control. Just what we're talking about here. You won't be angry all the time. You won't react in a mean-spirited way. Your flesh will be suppressed more and more. You'll fight for the holiness of God. In other words, your mind will change from the things of the world to the things of God. That's a given. If you're born again, you're going to respond humbly to the things of God, to God's Word especially. Humility will come out. You'll receive His Word in humility. So ask yourself, am I a self-controlled person? I mean, am I growing in my control over my sinfulness? Or am I going the other way? Do you respond in humility to the word of the Lord? This is his truth given to us to rescue us. Thirdly, you'll know you're saved when you be a peacemaker. In other words, you're not going to be the one who wants to start the fight all the time. And I'm not just talking about throwing up your dukes. I'm talking about just being the peacemaker. Because you know God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And that doesn't mean we don't stand for righteousness. Don't get that confused. But that's the kingdom of peace. We stand for righteousness, not for ourselves. Or do you try to cause problems all the time? Do you try to cause unity? That's God. Do you try to cause problems all the time? Do you always have to have your way? That's the flesh. If you want to have things God's way, that's of God. And then lastly, very simply, you'll receive criticism well. You may not like it because your flesh will still say, but inwardly, spiritually, you're going to know that I need to examine myself and see if I'm in the wrong and correct whatever I need to correct. And those are just a few. There are many others that we could talk about. All right, so what's Jesus really saying here? If you want to be saved, you have to humble yourself. Born spirit. Born spirit. Like the beggar looking for help. Secondly, when you see your sinfulness, you have to mourn over it. This is what we've covered the last couple of weeks. And then in today, when you do see those truths, you'll become meek or gentle, holding yourself back from the sin that's dominating you, the sin that wants to dominate you, letting the power of Christ work in you, and you'll defend his name. And you'll defend his name just by your, not by just your words, yes, that's true, but you'll defend his name by how you live. People will see it. Listen, everybody knew there was something unique about Jesus. Now, some of them saw the uniqueness because of what he did. That was phase two. But even in his teaching, as he's sitting on the mountain now, they're coming to him saying, okay, okay. You can almost see their tongues hanging out. Okay, you're going to rescue us from Rome, right? Right, 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 Jesus, right, Jesus, right, Jesus. Uh, No, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be poor in spirit and mourn over your sin. Hold up. That's not going to do any good, Jesus. You kind of see this little guy in his ears. No, no, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Bad idea. Bad idea. They won't like you if you do that. Bad idea. Sorry. I didn't come to rescue you from Rome. I came to rescue you from the tyranny of Satan who will cast your soul, who will be with you in hell forever. You get the point. You have to see that. Be gentle and meek. Those are the people, beloved, who make up the kingdom of God. That's the three parts so far, and we'll see more later. Okay? All right, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, that's a lot to take in, and please remember that our minds are very fleshly, and we're so easily distracted. But Lord, I know that there were some that were hearing because you have a purpose in all that you do. It's no accident that each one who's here today is here, for it was appointed unto this day for each of us to be here at this moment so that we would all hear your word and we would see your spirit at work and we would feel your spirit at work. Lord, help us to know and remember that, again, you do nothing by accident. Everything you do is purposeful. You know every thought that we think, even before we think it, your word tells us. You know every hair that's on our head, for everyone is numbered. 
And so, Lord, as we just quietly in this moment, as we close out our time together, we first of all just simply want to thank you for being a God who loves us. As you've told us in your word, you didn't come to condemn us. You came to rescue us. You came to save us. You came, us, you came to show us the way. And so, Father, I pray that in this moment, as holy as it is, that you would bind up Satan and not allow him to be used at this time. Or just cast him away just for a moment as he seeks to distract and confuse the heart. I, I pray that you would open to the heart that's nearest to eternal hell, the picture of heaven, and help them to see that this life is a battle. It's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. But Lord, how glorious it is when your spirit takes over and you begin to reveal truth. and The truth then begins to set us free. So Lord, may we be free indeed, people who seek to follow you in all ways. And Lord, we'll be careful to thank you and Lord, just joyfully long for those souls that will be together with us in the kingdom. Lord, what a contrast. What a different characteristic of those that are in the world versus those that belong to you. But Lord, thank you for giving us the clear picture and continuing to show us that as we go through this passage. And so we surrender this time to you and ask that you, as always, would do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can everyone stand, please?